Anybody know the name of the guy in the picture? Or is this crowd too young? Charles Kuralt, exactly right. CBS News, 40 years with CBS News, most famous probably for the on-the-road segments that appeared during the CBS Evening News for years, where Charles Geralt went around the United States in a motorhome and just recorded seemingly everyday life, things that don't usually show up in the news. But I sort of got to know who he was when he was the host of the CBS News Sunday Morning. Anybody remember that? When Okay, there's a few of you. I loved that show when he was the, and I haven't been able to watch it for a long time, but when he was the host, because it was just like a sort of a, a favorite uncle was inviting you into his living room to sit down and talk a little bit about the world's events and think about where the world was going and just have a nice conversation. He had such an easy manner, easy to trust. I felt like I knew him. Read his book called On the Road, really respected his work and trusted him. He died in 1997 at the age of 62 from complications from lupus. But then about two years later, as his estate was being settled, the news came out for 30 years, the last 30 years of his life, he had been living a double life. He had his family in New York City, his wife and children that sort of everybody knew about, but then there was this sort of other family in Arizona, a woman he had met 30 years before in one of those on-the-road segments. And and her children from a previous marriage, and he maintained a home with them as well. And I was so disappointed. I mean, here's a guy I never even met, but I felt like I knew, and he wasn't the person I thought he was. And maybe some of you have dealt with things like that too. It could be somebody in the media that you think, wow, that's, that would be an awesome person to meet. That would be really cool, seems like a, the real deal. And then you find out they're really not, that there's something going on that nobody knew about and they're nothing like what you thought. Or maybe, maybe it's a person you do know. Maybe there's somebody in your life you really did trust. Someone you spend a lot of time with and open yourself up to. Someone that you're really vulnerable and transparent with. You told them stuff that you told no one else. And then something happened, and it was probably unexpected. Something happened, and the relationship changed course, and it was never the same again. And there's not a friendship there anymore. There's nothing there anymore. And all those things that you told that person, you just wonder, are they ever going to talk about that? Or is that going to be used against me? It's disappointing, because we think we're pretty good judges of character. We're not going to open up to someone that we think might do that to us, and, and yet we get surprised when it does happen. But it's not just in relationships. <clears throat> I think we live in this world that it feels like sometimes the ground underneath us is shifting, and there is no place to firmly plant our feet in relationships or in anything else. Lots of things that we thought were sure and firm and we would never question are being questioned now. And for people who live in our culture, I think there are a lot of questions going on, and some of them have to do with God. I mean, there's this, this thing in our culture where we have to ask this question, who gets to decide who God is? 
Who gets to describe God for us? Because there's lots of competing views on God, lots of opinions about what God is like, different points of view that are expressed. Who has the right to say who God is? Who's telling the truth? I think lots of people are asking that question. And so we have to think, even if someone takes a biblical view of God, if they're willing to listen to what we have to say, they could even ask under those circumstances, is this God that you are talking about, this God you're describing, is he worthy of my trust? Because I've seen God allow lots of things that don't seem right. I've seen God allow tragedy and disaster and and people killed that are seemingly innocent. Is that kind of God worth trusting? That's a question that lots of people around us are grappling with, and I think if we're honest, maybe some of us grapple with too. Today we continue in the series that we're calling Praying with Greatness. And we've been looking at some prayers from the Old Testament, powerful people of faith talking to God, and we've learned a lot about prayer, and we've learned a lot about God as well, and we'll finish up next week. But this week, we're talking about a man named Nehemiah and his prayer. Nehemiah is a man of action, a man who's always ready to do something when there's a problem. He wants to address it, and I want us to think about a prayer that he prays right at the beginning of the book. It's in chapter 1, so that's where we'll park today. We pick up the story sort of where we left off last week. Last week we talked about Ezra, who was a man who lived during this time when the Persians were beginning to allow the people of Israel to return from exile. Remember, Babylon took them into exile partly because God allowed it in their sin, and now Persia is allowing some of them to return. Ezra is in the first wave of that, and they begin to rebuild their culture under Ezra as he speaks the word of the law. But then 15 years later, Nehemiah appears. He's still back in Persia, actually has a pretty important position in the court, and he's the cupbearer to the king, sees the king every day. But he gets a report back from Jerusalem. He hears what's going on back in his homeland, and what he hears is upsetting to him. He finds out that the walls of the city of Jerusalem are in disrepair. They're falling down. The gates of those walls have been burned. And we say, okay, what's the big deal? That sounds like they need to do some work. But, but in the ancient world, the walls of a city were the first and most important line of defense. Without that, all your enemies can just walk in and take whatever or whoever they want. And so immediately, Nehemiah is brought to tears over this, but he's also, because he's a man of action, ready to go do something about it. But he knows he needs some help. So his first thing, first step in his action plan is, go talk to the king. I get to see the king every day. He knows me. He's got resources to help. He can send me back home with some stuff to make this better. But before he goes to talk to the king, he wants to talk to God. And it's that prayer that I want us to think about today. It begins in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. Nehemiah says this, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And that's just part of a sentence, but it already begins to, to help us think about the nature of God, which is where this prayer really parks. The God who keeps the covenant. What's that about? Well, it's a word we don't use that much, right? 
Now, we don't talk about covenants with other people except maybe in a, a wedding ceremony. We sometimes talk about a covenant between a husband and a wife. But they used it all the time. It was the way that people just related to one another. If you have an overlord and somebody underneath him, that's the way they relate to one another. And they set out a covenant and say, this is how our relationship will work. You owe me this, and you get this in return. That's how it's going to operate. That's what the first five books of the Bible are all about. God says, I want a relationship with you, my people Israel. This is what you can expect from me, and this is what I expect from you. And those were everlasting promises. Nehemiah says, God, you're a God who keeps the covenant. You're a God when you make a commitment to a people, when you say, I'm going to do this, I promise things are going to be this way, they can expect that it's going to be just that way. You're a God who keeps promises. And then he goes on and he reminds God of one of those promises. Verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, and then this is a quotation, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So, God said from the beginning, if my people disobey, guess what? There's going to be exile. But if they return to me, even if they're as far away from Israel as they can possibly get, I will reach out to them and I will bring them back. Nehemiah says, that's, God, that's your promise. You told your people, yeah, and we messed up. The verses in between 5 and 8 are all about confession. We messed up, but now your people are returning to you, and your promise was to bring them back. So here's his request in verse 10. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand, a powerful God. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, the king. And then he reminds us, I was cupbearer to the king. And so the story goes, if you read through chapter 2 and on into the rest of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah did just what he planned. He went and talked to the king, and he asked for help, and the king grants that help. Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem, and he leads the people. He's a great example of leadership. He leads the people in rebuilding the wall so that the city is secure. It's not an easy process, but he makes that happen through God's power. So what do we learn from this prayer? the story that we have in this passage today. It's a simple lesson about the nature of God that really the whole Bible tells us. It's nothing new to Nehemiah. We could go all the way back to Genesis and see it. But it's simple. It's this. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And in a world where so much seems out of control, where nothing seems really sure, we're told in Scripture that when God speaks, when God says, I am going to do something, we can count on it happening. And we don't have much that's secure in our world. We don't have much that we can always depend on. But we can always depend on this. God keeps his promises. So 
what did God promise? If these promises are so important, we need to know what they're all about. Now, we could spend a lot of time today going on about the promises that God has made throughout Scripture, but I want us to, to look at four in quick succession. We're not going to spend very much time on any one of them, and, and three of them are from some of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, but they speak to us about what God has promised us, what we can always depend on, and maybe that'll speak into our prayer lives as well. The first promise comes from probably the best-known passage in Scripture, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God promises that if we put our faith in him, in Jesus Christ, that he is God's Son, that he came to save us, that's the beginning of eternal life. Yeah, there's death in our world. And sometimes it's meaningless death. Sometimes it's tragic death. And we are going to experience death. But in the face of all that death, we have this promise from Jesus that there will be life. Part of what we celebrate as Christians is why Easter is so important. That there is resurrection. That death is not the final word. That we look for something more than that, beyond that. It doesn't make all the pain of death go away. It's not some magic, easy answer that makes everything disappear. But it is our response to the tragedy of death. That God didn't leave it there. That there's more to life than this existence. Because life goes beyond this existence into eternity. That's the first promise. The second one we find in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We're sinners. There are people around us, maybe today you feel this way, in this room today, that have piled up sins in their past and it is a heavy load to carry that all the time. The good news of the gospel of Jesus is that there is forgiveness. We talked about this some last week. We talked about confession and, and naming our sin and, and not calling it a mistake and, and not calling it bad judgment, but calling it sin and identifying the sin and saying it clearly before God because it can be forgiven. We have that promise that no matter what we've done, no matter how bad we feel about ourselves, the guilt we're carrying around with us, it can be forgiven. And that's true for those who are coming to Christ and making the decision to follow Jesus, and it's true for those who have been serving Jesus forever and are still sinners. And that's all of us. The promise is there that we can be forgiven. A third promise comes from what we call the Great Commission which is our charge to go into the world and share the message of Jesus, we focus on that, but there's an important promise there as well. Jesus said, go, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's what we're called to do, to go and do, but along with that commission is this promise, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's a big job. When Jesus says, go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them, 
He doesn't mean once in a while. And he doesn't necessarily mean just in your own neighborhood. He means the world. And we might need some help with that. And Jesus says we've got it. So regardless of whether we're struggling with pain or brokenness or fear or that this commission has overpowered us, we can be sure that we are not in this alone. We don't have to do this work by ourselves. Jesus promises his presence with us wherever we go. And through his spirit, he fulfills that promise. We know we're not in this by ourselves. We don't have to face all of this on our own. Jesus is present. And then a passage that's probably not as familiar as those others, John 14. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And here's the promise. My Father will love them, and we will come to them, and we will make our home with them. All the others sort of point to this. It's a conclusion of all those promises. God promises his love. There are so many people in our world who are pretty sure no one loves them. Yeah, people may talk about love. People may say it, but do they really mean it? And Jesus says we can be confident that God loves us. Otherwise, why would Jesus have died so that we could receive forgiveness and eternal life? Why would he care whether he's with us always? If he didn't love us, none of those things would be in place. So when we feel unloved, when we feel like we are not worth loving, we still have this promise that God will love us. As we think about our prayers, I keep noticing in these prayers that we've been studying that these people go to God and they talk about God and then they say, God, remember the time when you said this? Just what Nehemiah does. God, remember back in the, you're a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping kind of God. Remember in the covenant when you said this? I think there's a great lesson for us in that. Now, it's not that, and I hear this used sometimes, it's not that we can come to God and say, hey, God, you promised this, so you got to do this for me. We never get to control God. It doesn't work that way. I'm not in charge. God is in charge. But what we can do is go to God and say, God, I know you're a, You're a promise-keeping kind of God. I know what your nature is because you've shown us in Jesus. And here's some stuff you promised. And all I'm asking is, is God for you to be the God you are. Because right now I feel unloved, and I need to know you love me. Or I feel alone and I need to know your presence. Or I feel guilty, and I I need forgiveness. Or I feel like death is overpowering me, and I need to know eternal life. And the promises could go on and on, but I think it would work. I think it makes sense for us to take these promises that God has made to us and say, God, in your promise-keeping way, be at work. Be the God you've told me you are. 
because I need it. What promise have you been ignoring lately? What have you been struggling with, maybe on your own? What have you felt guilty about really not taking to God? The good news for us as the church, for us as Christians, is God keeps his promises. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful that you keep your promises. We're thankful that when you say something we can know, it will happen. And we're thankful for the promises that you've made. Promises that tell us that you're always with us, that death is not the end, that our sin is not in control, and that you love us. So God, have those promises to be at work in our lives so that we see you and we see who you've called us to be. God, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.